you're going through the book of Romans, we, we're into this portion in Romans 13. The difficult part is, is pretty much done away now, verses 1 to 7. And uh, it was a challenging, challenging portion of the Scriptures, but one of the things that we found within that was no inconsistency. There's no inconsistency in the Word of God with regards to what was there in, in 1 to 7. And it continues on in the same line here in this, in this portion of the sermon or this portion of the text, verses 8 to 10. The title of the sermon this morning is simply The Love That Fulfills the Law. The Love That Fulfills the Law. Let's, uh, let's open a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as always, dear Lord, as always, dear Father, we need you. We need you, dear Lord, to help bring an understanding to the passage for us, help bring out its beauty, help bring out its wonderful simplicity, help bring out, dear Lord, the understanding of the Scriptures and the consistency that we find in it. And also, dear Lord, that you might be able to challenge us with how we are to live our lives. We thank you, Father, for this passage this morning. I pray, dear Lord, your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. Four points this morning that we have. The indischargeable covenant is the first one. And yes, I, I made up the word. Indischargeable. I can't find it anywhere, but it, it just fit perfectly. Um, it is a covenant that just simply will not be discharged. A law that will not be discharged. And that is that law of love. There are debts that we discharge in life the one that we owe and we will continue to owe for the rest of our life will be love, love toward others. And we see that in that first portion of the message this morning or of of the text. Verse 8, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. The first five words in this passage is often quoted but equally is often left unrelated to that which comes after. Context is really important to understand. It's always good to have context because it brings out the eternal value of what's here. When it speaks about, oh, no man, anything, this is not necessarily related to borrowing and lending. We will touch on that. We will go into that a little bit. The important consideration of this verse is that we understand that there is one thing that must be always fully discharged and that is whatever we owe any other individual, that must be discharged. But, but, we will never be discharged of love, love for others. Love is that which fulfills the law and love will endure and will continue on forever. It will not have an end. Owe no man anything but to love one another. All debts will be paid in full within the terms agreed with, but love towards others is perpetually owed. And that's the point. That's the point. Love is the indischargeable covenant. In the passages we just finished studying, it's not outside of... It it fits in its perfect context. We are also to render to all their dues. We are... It's speaking about those who have the rule over us. We are to render all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honour to whom honour. The passage assumes that what is due to them is owed to them. 
It is owed to them. It's owed to them because the Jews, the tributes, the custom, the fear, the honour belongs to them according to what the scriptures tell us. They have the rule, they have the temporal, they are the temporal ministers of God and therefore we are their debtors. We are their debtors. Whether we like it or not, that is what the Bible presents as our temporal reality of this life and of this world. We are their debtors. And in that regard, we need to pay those dues. So there's this consistency that's carrying on in this passage also. Just as the rulers of the world are to have all their dues and nothing is to be illegally withheld from them, so too are we to owe no man anything but to love one another. There is to be no debt outside of terms. There are no debts to be outside of terms. They are to be discharged. That is, the one thing that we are always to owe is to love one another. It's really really interesting because when you look at the debt that's spoken of in the passage here, it's not just a debt of borrowing. Um, it's, it's, It's a debt that's held outside the terms of that which has been agreed to. When the passage speaks of owing here, it refers to that which injures another person. Uh, it, it's contrasted with, with love. Um, and that is, we, we work no ill to our neighbour in verse 10. The Bible doesn't teach explicitly against borrowing and lending. It doesn't teach explicitly against borrowing and lending. But it does prefer the one to the other, which, which I'll explain. People have got a right to enter into a financial agreement with those agreeing to the terms of that agreement. Make sense? We have a right to be able to do so. We have a right to enter into financial agreements with others, provided we stick within the terms of those agreements. We see that right through the Old Testament. We see that also in the New. All people are in that opportunity or have that opportunity. Example, houses are rented to tenants where the tenant agrees to pay rent to the owner of the house for the privilege of living in the house And that is in accordance with the terms of that agreement. They are to make that payment within a specific period of time and no later. And no later. And that's the injury. The injury is when those payments come in later than when they're due. And and it's really poor for a Christian not to pay their dues within time because outside of that time, we become debtors we then owe and we injure those individuals who we are indebted to we owe and we are injuring them because now they're wondering well if it hasn't now come on time when will it come because when it didn't come in in its due date i still have my debts to pay my obligations to pay now that it didn't come at that time and the promise was made to pay according to the terms of the agreement when will it come now anxiety fear anger, all of these things that end up building up within the individual through whom those agreements had been set. You injure those people when you do so. This is just with regards to renting a house. Well, there is also a capital borrowing. This is a capital borrowing. You pay rent on capital or a portion of capital that you may borrow from another individual, whether that individual be a public institution, whether it be a bank, 
or whether it be another private individual. You borrow a percentage of capital to be able to run a business, start a business or whatever it is. You enter into a term of agreement with that individual. That interest component is the rent that you pay for that, for that, uh, for that opportunity. Okay? These are agreements that we are able to enter into with people. These are what's known as capital debts. These are capital debts. We are to ensure as a business person that you do not borrow beyond your means, that you repay the debt together with its interests and the interest is, as I said, the rent on the debt and it's got to be paid back on time, in due course, in such manner as fits the terms of that agreement. If, however, the borrower borrows beyond his means and cannot fulfil his obligation, he becomes a debtor and owes the other. When you borrow beyond your means, you become indeed and in every way sinful before the Lord. It is covetousness that actually puts you in that position to begin with. There's a whole range of things that actually put you into that state. You therefore then injure the other party. Have a look at, um, well, I won't get you to turn there, but Leviticus 19.13 sets the precedent. It says, Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbour, neither rob him. The wages of him that is hired shall not abide with thee all night until the morning. In other words, the picture that we get here is that you owe an individual for the labour that he's provided for you and rather than paying him that money on time which you have in your pocket, you figure you just hold on to it until tomorrow. You know? You know, some of you might not be aware, you might not have experienced it. I experienced this. When, when money was my God, I experienced feeling that way. I thought that everything that came into my hand was my possession. And the longer I kept it, the, the more comfortable I felt having it, you know. Now, that wasn't the case necessarily when it came to paying wages. Those things I always paid on time, all the time. Um, but it certainly was the case when it came to paying taxes, you know. I had my, my set order at that time and that was pay all the things that would otherwise obstruct my business. Again, wages, you don't pay the wages, you're not going to get workers. Pay your materials, so well, if you don't pay your materials, you're not going to get materials to be able to do the, the work that the workers need to do. But, you know, government could wait. And again, it was this feeling within me that I needed to hold on to that money and this was when money was my God. This is not the way it should be. We are to disperse. We are to give those when we have them. It's a sin to do so otherwise. You are to make sure that you do everything you can to make good on your obligations on time. Your reputation and your witness to Christ depends upon it. Depends upon it. You do everything to settle your obligations. Everything. Everything you can. In doing so, you show love. And you demonstrate your care and concern for others, not yourself. Okay? Owe no man anything but to love one another. So the owing referred to here is that which is outside of the terms. The obligation is based on love. Commentator Alfred Barnes makes a point. He says, The interpretation of this command is to be taken with, its, with this limitation, that we are not to be indebted to him so as to injure him, or to work ill to him, okay? That's what that refers to and relates to. Now, it doesn't say that borrowing is a good thing, 
okay? It doesn't say that borrowing is a good thing. We see that the Bible makes it plain that it is better to lend than to borrow. There's a risk of covetousness as the motive when you borrow that which you don't have. There is the assumption that tomorrow is going to be as this day, but even more prosperous. And James warns about that in in his epistle. There's also the aspect of a promise based on events outside of your control. And that's also assumed. You're assuming, again, that tomorrow is going to be like today, but more prosperous. You're making that assumption when you're borrowing. Now, that's that's not necessarily an injury to the other party that you owe the money to, because you see... When it comes to borrowing money, for example, that risk is built into the interest. It's built into the interest rate. Okay? They assume the risk because of the interest rate that's applied. Unless, of course, they have... Well, if they have assets that they're holding as security, that is also part of the terms of the contract and you do yourself the injury. Lastly, there's also the knowledge that the borrower is always the slave to the lender. Always. It's one of the reasons why we've set within, this, within our own constitution of this church that we will never borrow money for the establishment of a building or for the establishment of anything. We are happy to go into arrangements with other businesses where we have a term of credit, okay? That's not a drama. That's part of a standard business transaction. But when it comes to borrowing money for something, an asset, or the idea of you know, building a church or anything like that, if we don't have the money, we're not going to be entering into that sort of a relationship we set that within the constitution that way if i'm not here anymore for one reason or another we already have that ingrained within there why because you see the spirit of what we see in the scripture is doing everything trusting the lord you know trusting the lord with what we have and borrowing is a bet it's a gamble you know it's a bet and a gamble and it's not something that is of the lord so christians ought to pay their debts they ought to do it before or the moment it is due never after never after never after you get that never after not a day not a moment late you pay it before or on time and you build within you a reputation of a trustworthy individual and somebody worthy of being in business or worthy of having a relationship with others and that doesn't matter what it is you know you buy tickets um somebody's you buy tickets for another individual for example to go to whatever event it might be okay um that individual is to pay you the money for those tickets the moment they receive the money not oh can i pay you next week no no that wasn't part of the arrangement that wasn't part of the terms you know well do i have to then call you when you make that if you have to call somebody if somebody has to call you because you've not made good on your promise to pay you have already injured that individual because you've got no idea what it's like, you know. To, some people don't, aren't, aren't really assertive. They'll just, they'll just cop the loss, you know. You've injured that party. Make sure you pay your debts and pay them, pay them well and on time. But this passage tells of an indischargeable debt and that's the point. It says, no man, no, no man anything but to love one another for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Love is what we will always owe another. It is this indischargeable covenant that we are obligated to keep. Owe no man anything, but but what we are always to owe is to love one another, is to love one another. Love is the only debt that should always be paying 
yet ought to always be looked upon as owing. As owing. This is Christ, beloved. This is the Lord. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. We know the passage. It's, it's, it's read at every wedding. We are, beloved, the beneficiaries of a love that can never be repaid. And so we owe his love to all men for all time, under all circumstances. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. One of those passages, and I want you to consider this, the word that's employed here is the word charity. It's the word charity. It's not the charity that we think about today. It's not the charity that we think about today. This form of love that's spoken about here is a love that is far greater than anything that we can conceive of with regards to love as we know within our minds but also charity as we usually think of it. This is love in action. This is love working. This is love at work. And one of the interesting things that you'll find unique to the authorised version of the Bible, the King James Version, is that everywhere the word charity is employed in place of the word love, even though the Greek word that underpins it is the same, you see it consistently with respect to love between brethren. It's the love that we have between brethren. And that's what's spoken about here. This is a church setting. And he writes in verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. The thing with charity, the thing with love is that it will endure and it will endure for all eternity. It will remain. And one of the reasons why it will remain and how we know it can remain is because it is God. God is love. God endures. God will never cease to exist. And therefore, love itself will never cease to exist. It is always that which is going to be shared among brethren and especially among those who we desire to come to the knowledge of Christ. In this life and in this world, we share it to everyone. Well, Jesus spoke about it really clearly, didn't he? He spoke about not hating our enemies, but what? Loving them. We've got to love our enemies. Now, I don't know, know about you, but I'm sure that there are people who you don't consider your enemy, but you don't exactly love them, you know. We, if, we, if we chance to love our enemies, then how much more those who irritate us, you know, or who we irritate? You know? So what are the terms of this debt? Well, the terms of the covenant are these in verse 9. 
For this, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. The next part of that I'll expound in the next point. When we love one another, we naturally fulfill those five commandments. We naturally fulfill them. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Love for others cannot consider the taking of another person's husband or wife. This is an evil idea. This is an evil concept and it needs to always be avoided. So too, love cannot be committing infidelity against their own spouse. This also is an evil and it should never happen. An individual who loves cannot commit to those things, cannot attend to those things. Are you an office worker? Make sure you stay away from those office parties. You know, set boundaries to the things that you know you are potentially at risk of. And I'm not, I'm not kidding with regards to this. You know, my wife works in family law. She doesn't tell me the stories in detail. She definitely tells me some of the circumstances. And I'm sure that each one of us have put ourselves into positions where it was a risk that we could have committed some form of infidelity. You know, I've been there and that's happened to me also. The idea is to make sure that you set boundaries with regards to your relationships. If it comes to an individual's close friends of yours who happen to be sing- single, single, don't make too much of a habit of, of spending too much time going out with them. There is a risk. There is a risk that you're going to be drawn into something that is going to be dangerous. You need to flee from those things. You need to run from them. The key is never to place yourself in a position where such a thing could be a risk to occur. And adultery, <laughs> adultery doesn't begin with the act, beloved. It doesn't begin with the act. It begins in the heart. Jesus made that clear in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. It begins first in the heart. Thou shalt not kill. Well, it goes without saying that hatred has to be the motivation. And if hatred is the motivation for murder, then the taking of a life cannot be in any way comparable with love. It's not necessarily something I need to expound on too much. I think that's pretty clear. But there is clearly a distinction between hatred and murder. Yet, when the Lord spoke of that which defiles a man... He referred to that first which begins in the heart. He says in Matthew 15, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, and these are the things which defile a man. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Just to give you a bit of an understanding of how they determine the distinction between what's known today as manslaughter what was known in the scripture as manslayer and murder. There's a distinction between those two. There's a distinction between those two and that's, that originates in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4. We've just got two verses we're going to be reading there from verse 41. Moses was charged to set aside cities of refuge to which a manslayer would be able to flee to. Or to which the uh, the individual yeah uh, would f- flee from the um, uh, from those that would come after him, the revenger of blood. Verse forty one. 
Then Moses severed three cities on this side Jordan toward the sun rising, that the slayer might flee thither, which should kill his neighbour unawares and hated him not in times past, and that fleeing unto one of these cities he might live. You see, it's hatred that determines whether or not you've actually murdered an individual or they, they were killed by accident. And there's plenty of examples that are used in the scriptures, you know, a, um, you know, an individual swinging an axe and the axe head flies off and, and strikes another man dead, okay? It, you may be pursued by the revenger of blood for, with regards to that. There might be negligence on your part with regards to that, but you were to flee into one of the cities of refuge. You were to remain there until the death of the high priest. Once the high priest died, then you were free to leave that city. There's more to it, but I haven't got time to go into it. Nevertheless, this is that, that, that position that was made available in the Old Testament that they understood that if you didn't hate an individual to begin with and they died for some reason at your hands, you were not the murderer. But the murderer, murder, the killing that's spoken about in the text is one of murder. Murder is an act taken if hatred rules unabated. Man can only judge the act but understand and remember that it's God that can judge the heart. God judges the heart. Thou shalt not steal. The very concept of theft proves property ownership. We have capitalism in the Bible. Yes, we do. And in very much so, we do. We have that found within the Scriptures. No person can steal that which another person owns. You can only steal based on the private property of another individual. So in every way, private property is a biblical foundation and theft of it is the outworking of covetousness that does injury to its owner. So theft cares nothing for the effort through which men undergo to attain a good thing, whatever that is. Theft is the taking of that which is not justly earned and theft comes in all manner of shapes and sizes. We think that theft is just stealing an item. Well, it's not necessarily. It's not. You ever cheated on an exam in school? If you've ever cheated on an exam in school, you've thieved a grade to which others exerted energy and effort to attain justly. You have taken an advantage at their expense. You've taken an advantage at their expense. Sadly, the education system today is geared to give unwarranted advantage to those who feel entitled to it. And the efforts of those who have earned it now seem to go away unrewarded. It's a, the tragic state of the world that we're living in today. In times past, you had to work diligently. You know, in, when I was growing up, you could fail a grade and stay back. You could actually still be at a certain age at least a year older than everybody else in your class because you flunked and you would have to stay behind a year. I don't know if that's ever done today. Is that ever done today? I don't think it's done anymore. No. They pass regardless. You go up to the next level just because it's based on your year. Ever seen a football game where a person faked a foul or a penalty? It's one of the reasons why I can't watch the World Cup soccer. I can't, I can't watch it. It makes me sick. You know, I can't handle it, you know. But that is theft of reward not earned at the cost of those who did earn it. Okay, ever taken a break from work in the guise of a toilet stop? Ever taken a sickie, fully expecting to be paid as if you earned it? 
this also is theft of an employer's hard-earned income that he or she had taken great risk to attain. It's theft. It's theft. It's, it's something that I've, I've, I've told people off with regards to it. And I, I don't, my son did it once, I remember, and, uh, and, I, and I said to him, you've actually stolen. You know, you have a right to take a day off without pay. You can do that. You need a day off. You can take it without pay. But the sickies are there as a privilege. They're a privilege for you when you are actually sick. They're a privilege that's paid for by the employer at his expense with no productivity provided to him. They are a complete privilege. They are a gift. And you're entitled to a certain number of them. Yes. But not to go about and do your daily stuff, do whatever you want to do. You can do that. Nothing stops you from doing that. But why get paid as if you weren't it? This is an advantage that people are taking that are dishonest in every respect. And, and I hate it because I was a boss for a lot of years. All right? So I own my own business for 25 odd years. I know what it's like. And I know what it's like also when my employees also steal my reputation. They steal my reputation because they don't see me on site on a regular basis. There was a time I was working 100 hours per week and my employees are actually thinking I'm at home playing on the PlayStation that I didn't own, you know. They thought I'm mucking around or I'm doing nothing. I remember hearing one guy and I caught him saying it. He came to my house to do some work and it's like 7 o'clock in the morning and he say, is he up? Is he up? You know, I'm up at 4.30 and you're telling me, you're asking if, if I'm up. And that tells you the assumption. I oh, just lie in bed waiting for, you know, you guys do all the work and uh, it disgusts me when I hear people talking as if their bosses don't do anything sort of what you, they're speaking under their breath saying, you know, ah, oh, he doesn't do any work. Yeah, sort of what you. Well, it's, it's, it's actually now in English. So, yeah. Sotto voce, under the breath. You ever heard that expression? Come on, you've heard that expression before. It's, it's, it's now English. Well, anyway, all right. There you go. Well, now, when you hear it, you'll know what it means because it is spoken about in English as well, sotto voce. Um, temporary benefits that people gain through theft can't be compared to the cost that they've inflicted upon others or the cost that they've inflicted upon their own selves. They destroy their own reputations. Numbers 32, 23 says, and be sure your sin will find you out. It's a verse that's perfectly fitted to theft. So this is not the fruit of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not the fruit of love. This is a fruit that comes from selfishness. Another one is, thou shalt not bear false witness. It intrigues me how quickly people excuse deception. They bear false witness and that false witness is not just a false witness about lying about a person, it also relates to bearing false witness, lying of the witness of your own self. It's basically lying, it's deceit. It speaks of yourself, of that thing which is not true. When we lie, the motivation behind it is excused time and time again, but the end result remains. It's a lie. It's still a lie. It doesn't, doesn't matter how well you're going to try and defend it. Sometimes the lie is of one defence. Sometimes it's about personal gain. Uh, whether that gain is material or emotional, it doesn't matter. Do you guy to gain a possession, Mr. Salesman? Do you gain, do you lie in order to make sure that you gain your commissions? 
Do you lie in all, about a product that it can do a certain thing, but you know deep down it can't do that sort of thing or you can't prove it? You know, have you done that? You lie at making a, a profit. At what cost? Do you lie to advance an ideology? Do you advise to advance a promotion? Do you lie to make yourself appear better than you are? I don't know how many of you have done that. I've certainly done it. Whatsoever the motive is, it's still deception. And one thing is certain is that it is not done with a motive of love. God is not a man that he should lie, said Balaam to Balak in Numbers 23, 19. Even the wicked know that God does not lie. And what are we to say of those who do yet identify themselves as children of God? How should we think of a man or a woman who claims to identify with the purity of Christ and yet out of their mouth comes the filth of deception? Our tongues give us away more often than not, beloved. They give away the heart in many ways. Turn your Bibles to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. James chapter 3. Here James speaks of this dangerous member of our body called the tongue. James chapter 3, after the book of Hebrews, you'll find James. I love, I love the, uh, the pictures that he gives within this text, it's fantastic. James chapter 3, let's read from verse 4. Behold also the ships, he writes, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beasts, of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind." But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth out of the, out the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries? either of vine figs, so can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. What a wicked web we weave when we practice to deceive. You ever heard of that expression? And that is exactly what happens. We tell a lie, you will be caught out unless you have an infinite memory. You know? And God is the only one that has an infinite memory and He doesn't need to lie. He doesn't need to lie. And does not lie, that's outside of his character. But you will be caught out. It's one of the things that actually piques our attention very, 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 very quickly is contradiction. I could have sworn you said a few weeks ago this and this. That's it. 
what you just said now seems to contradict what you said back then. You know, my wife, she's fantastic at picking up on these contradictions. Can't, the, woe to you if you're a child in our household trying to grow up with parents that can recognise contradiction very quickly because I'll tell you what, tough going, you didn't get away with much. But, uh, but Maria was always right onto it. These are the things that we have a risk of doing when we deceive people. Thou shalt not covet. It's the 10th commandment. It's the last commandment in the, uh, in the 10 commandments in Exodus 20. It's also the last commandment here. You can lust after wealth. You can lust after popularity and fame. You can lust after reputation. You can lust after almost anything and not a single person in the world will know it. Not a single person. This is something that you do within your own heart and only God knows the truth of it. This is not something that you can hide from the Lord, you know. It's the 10th commandment in the Bible, and it's the one that only God can judge. You can covet the things that you don't have. The rich young ruler coveted the things that he already owned. Like that? You think it's only coveting after things that other people have? Oh, well, the rich young ruler coveted those things that he owned. You can covet wealth. Ananias and Sapphira coveted reputation. They coveted reputation. That didn't go well for them. You can covet power. Herod coveted glory and was eaten of worms. These are the terms of the covenant. This is the covenant of love that we're talking about. These are the aspects of the law that are non-negotiables and we are to be aware of what they are but all of them are fulfilled in one and they are fulfilled in the entire summary of the covenant, which is the golden rule, also known as love, loving others, loving your neighbour as you do yourself. The summary of the covenant, the third point this morning. Verse 9 in our text, it says, For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, Then it says, and if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. There's no other commandment in the Bible that even comes close to that. There's nothing that comes close to it. It is our love for others that motivates us to do the right thing by others. It's our love for others that motivate us. It's our love for others that will not commit adultery, that contrasts... uh, that, uh, that, that contrasts fidelity. It is our love for others that will not murder them. That contrasts love. It's our love for them that doesn't take from others to give to those who, are, who have not earned. It's our love for others that restrains the tendency of our tongue to lie and to bear false witness. And it's our love for others that seeks their good rather than, rather than our own. We esteem others greater than ourselves and we don't covet. We don't desire and lust after those things. It's what's known as the golden rule. It's amazing, the golden rule, because the golden rule is spoken about in the world, but it's rarely ever practiced. Even the world talks about the golden rule. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love thy neighbour as thyself, they say. Fascinating how they always quote scripture. Love thy neighbour as thyself, you know. And 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 they command you to do so. But then they themselves won't do so. I find that always intriguing. Individuals who demand that they need to be loved, they themselves won't love. Turn your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. Third book in the Old Testament. 
right in the middle of the Mosaic law. God often repeats a point and he explains things in a wonderful way. He gives summaries of the Ten Commandments through Scripture. Leviticus chapter 19. What's that song of angels? What was it? Hey? <laughs> it could have been something like that. Yeah, it sounds like that. Leviticus chapter 19 we're going to be having a look at verse 18 this is really fascinating I want you to give some consideration to this Leviticus chapters 18 through to 21 in Leviticus God is instructing the people of God not to do as the nations of the world do it's a really interesting study read Leviticus chapter 18 through to 21 what you'll see within there is a picture of how the world behaves and it's filled with thou shalt nots in there, okay? In other words, thou shalt, it introduces it in the, first, in the first verse of that chapter, chapter 18. Thou shalt not do as the things of the nations around you do as the Egyptians do and so on and have a look at those things. He wants the people separated from, from the, the people of the world. Leviticus 19 from verse 11 God speaks of theft and false dealings. He speaks of lies and blasphemy. He speaks of defrauding one another, cursing one another, unrighteousness and hatred. And then in verse 18, he states this, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. I am the Lord. Look down in verse 34. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you. And thou shalt love him as thyself. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The distinct impression that is gained within the Old Testament is that we are to love the, our neighbours as ourselves. It's the highest form of nobility in the scripture, in the entire Bible. And it underlies everything related to God. The last passage I want you to turn to in this point is Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Here we have one of the scribes that comes to the Lord Jesus and he, and he asks the Lord that which the rich young ruler also asked the Lord to a degree. When the rich young ruler asked about how he should gain eternal life, the scribe comes asking a particular question about the first commandment of all. Mark chapter 12. Read from verse 28. We'll go to 34. In this passage, Mark twelve twenty eight. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the soul and with all the strength 
and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst ask him any question. Not far from the kingdom of God. Not far. Not far. He's got the basic heartfelt understanding of the nature of God. You see that in the response. You see that in the response. And he wasn't far from the kingdom of God. So close. You get the impression that the moment the gospel came out, the moment the Lord Jesus was crucified and and taken up, that this scribe was one of them which actually believed the gospel. He was not far from the kingdom of God. And Jesus responded. There's this tenderness that Jesus shows towards a Jewish scribe in this text. It's not repeated anywhere else. He doesn't respond that way to any other Pharisee, any other scribe. He refers to them as scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. He puts them in this, in this box. But the tenderness that Jesus showed this individual recognizes something that this man was not far from the kingdom of God. Well, how far are you? Not far is not there yet. Not far doesn't mean you're saved. Not far doesn't mean that you're going to enter heaven the moment of your death. Not far still means distant. Whatever that distance is, how far are you? Have you believed the gospel? Have you believed the truth of what the scriptures say? Are you close? You're not far, but what's holding you back? Is it, is it, is it pride? Is it, is it covetousness? Is it one of these other things? You not recognize the love of the Lord Jesus Christ? You're not, you haven't yet believed the gospel of, of this love that he speaks about here that's been shared for you? What about those of you who might be saved, those of you who know Christ? Have you gained that love that the Lord's spoken of here? Do you recognize it? Do you experience it? Do you go to the Lord in prayer on a daily basis to actually experience that wonderful love of the Lord for, for you in spite of your own struggles with sin and all that sort of thing? Do you know of that love that fulfills the law, this love that's constant? How are your dealings with other people? How do you deal with them? Do you demonstrate love towards them? Something that's similar to the love that you've received? Do you demonstrate patience towards them? Something that you've also received? How are your dealings with other people? Are you short with them? Could you imagine the Lord being that short with you? Could you imagine if the Lord dealt with you some ways that you might deal with other people? If there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. This is the summary of the covenant of God. It demonstrates his nature and we will see the fulfillment of the law in this last point. The fulfillment of the covenant. Verse 10. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You know, there's... um, there's times when I think I'm doing okay, you know. There's times when I think that I'm 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 doing all right. I'm I'm, I'm loving people. Uh, I, I was never like that. I was never like that before. I, I I never. It wasn't that I hated people, didn't hate anyone. I was just indifferent. I was just indifferent, you know. I didn't really care. I was indifferent. I didn't really care for other people's feelings, other people's hurts, you know. 
I only really cared for myself, you know. I only, the only time I really cared for other individuals was when it suited my own purpose. Uh, until I got married and then all, all of a sudden there was a, there was a love there that I'd never really experienced before. But it wasn't a love that I shared with many people. Uh, probably the greatest one that I mourn the most is the lack of love that I demonstrated to my mum. I didn't really demonstrate a lot of love to my mum, you know, and that was, you know, it's only now that she's gone that I think about it and it's too late to do anything about it. I know I've changed. I know that there are a lot of people that I love now. And I grieve when they grieve and I hurt when they hurt. I'm happy when they're happy. And I think it's one of those things that having my own children gave me a greater heart to love God's children. And I think that's why in the Bible it speaks about a pastor being qualified, first of all, by having his own children. Because unless you have your own flesh and blood, how can you, how can you love those who belong to Christ, who are God's children? How can you demonstrate that same sort of love? Because, you know, I don't know about you, but your children don't often love you back, but you love them anyway, you know? I don't have to like them, but I do love them, you know. But it's the same sort of thing, you know. We expect that even within the church, there's going to be times where members or a member of the congregation is going to not like you. And, and, I, and, I, and I have to work well beyond that because I was like that with my parents, you know, yet I knew that they loved me anyway. So in the same way, we are the same. And this, this, this indifference that I had towards people um, is something that sadly is seen today in such great number within those who are meant to have the care for us. And the atrocities that I'm seeing at the moment, the inhumane acts that I'm seeing by people in politics, these are working ill to their neighbour. They're not loving their neighbour as themselves. There's other motivations there. And I see this tremendously today. And I see it, I see it most evidently in the media. Of, of all places, I see this, this vileness within them of, of, of hatred towards the people that they are gleaning their incomes from. I've I seen and heard um, from their own mouth a desire to see, for example, COVID death rates rise because it increases their ratings. They wanted to see the numbers go up. One producer from CNN saying, why aren't the numbers higher? They should be higher because he's desiring the ratings to go higher. You know? And, and he goes, no, I know that that's not right. Darn right, it's not right. But where's the love? There is a concern for something other than man. And when, and when there's such indifference demonstrated towards fellow man, you cannot apply that golden rule. That golden rule is out the window. And just when I think I'm doing well, though, with my own love, you know, and the love that I have towards others, here the text tells us with regards to love, love works no evil to his neighbour. Love has his first thoughts towards others and the first concern of all is for their concern. And just when I think I'm doing well, I get put to shame by my wife. Um, How often I feel that I can learn so much from her about the love of Christ. I'm not going to embarrass her. I'm not going to go into detail about anything. But suffice to say that we can learn 
to love by the examples of sacrificial love we see evidenced in those around us. We can learn to love. All of us can learn to love more than what we love today. In her, I see the greatest care and concern for the well-being of others in so many more ways than I've yet to come close to emulating. And then I think about Jesus. It's wonderful to think that you're doing really well with love and, and, and then to be sort of made ashamed that you really don't have that real example of love uh, and you get that from someone else. And I, and I love to see that coming, especially from godly mothers who, who put our own love often to shame. And, and mothers are, seriously, guys, if you want to learn how to love, you know, take a look at mothers. Take a look at mothers. I don't think I don't think any anyone can come close to that, and the love that they have. They put our own love to shame, and yet I still think of Jesus. I come to think of Jesus. I try to imagine a love that labours abundantly, like Paul. You know, in the New Testament, beaten mercilessly, imprisoned frequently, stoned, shipwrecked, in danger of drowning, threatened with robbery, endangered of exposure in the wilderness in fear, in hunger, in cold and in nakedness and added to this the burden of all those that the gospel has been preached to and then to add salt to the wounds, the reproach of those that he cared for, cared for. And then I think of Jesus. And we, we, we look at what these evangelists have done and what these preachers have done and everything that they've exposed themselves to by sharing the gospel of Christ and some of them even being killed for the sake of the work. And then I think of Jesus. I can't help but think of Jesus. Love worketh no ill to his neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. They had the opportunity to take Jesus when he preached the gospel to the poor, but they didn't. They had opportunity to take him when he cured the lame, when he healed the sick, when he brought sight to the blind, when he raised the dead, but they, they didn't. And they waited they waited until the son of perdition put Christ into their hand and betrayed him with a kiss. And about the time of that solemn prayer that he made when he sweated great drops of blood, the Bible says. It was about that time. Whom seek ye? And they said to Jesus, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth, I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way, John 18, 7 to 8. Even here, Jesus desires no harm to his disciples, no ill to his neighbour. Taken and sat before one of the high priests late at night, then taken to Caiaphas, also a high priest. There were two high priests in Jerusalem reigning at that time. Then to the judgment hall of Pilate in the early hours of the morning. Then again set before Herod the king and then returned to Pilate again then scourged to within an inch of his life, presented before the people with a crown of thorns pressed into his head. The same people he came to save from their sin, as the scriptures foretold. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted you. Acts 3.14, the people rejected him. They cursed themselves with an oath. His blood be on us and on our children, they cried. Matthew twenty-seven, twenty-five. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a, as a lamb to the slaughter. Isaiah chapter 53, 700 years before the birth of Christ to Mary was that prophecy written. And then he was nailed naked to a public cross. They parted his garments, you know. They parted... They parted his garments at the bottom of the cross. They shared it among themselves, the soldiers did. Then they gambled for his coat and the robbers on either side of him cursed him and the people laughed and scorned at him. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd my tongue cleaveth to the jaws, to my jaws. And thou hast brought me unto the dust of death, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet, and they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. The psalmist wrote this 1,500 years before the cross. 1,500 years before the cross. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. Jesus identified the evil in the people. He saw their rage. He witnessed their blindness. (laughs) He was the perfect picture of their hypocrisy as he intercedes on their behalf. He witnesses their hypocrisy. Love worketh no ill to his neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. It's not possible to find a greater example of the love that fulfills the law. It's just not possible to find a greater one. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Beloved, the debt that Christ paid, we owe. The debt that Christ paid, we owe. We owe love. We owe love to our neighbour. We owe love to all people. We owe love especially amongst one another. It testifies of Christ, the love that we have for another. You know that? It testifies of Christ. He demonstrated his love and the eternality of his love through paying our debt. And we owe that love and we will always owe that love. Jesus is the example of the love that we owe to others. It is the love that fulfills the law. We are saved by a covenant of love. And finally, the love we owe to others will never be discharged, never. No, never. It'll never be discharged, not even after we go to him or he comes for us. 
Maranatha. And amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear Lord, for the love that you demonstrate. We thank you, Father, for your death on the cross. And we thank you, dear Lord, that your spirit has made us wise to the understanding of the wonderful blessing of this love. And we ask and pray, dear God, that you would continue to go before us, that you would change us, transform us. And that we might repent of the lovelessness that we've had within our own lives. The lovelessness, dear Lord, that we have demonstrated to others. And, dear Lord, if we are given that opportunity to love again those who we, in one way or another, may have despised, I pray, dear Father, that you would enable us and that you would give us those opportunities to return to those people the love that we owe them and that that love will continue no matter what. I praise you, Father, for this time and ask you, dear Lord, your hand upon this congregation. Bless them, we pray. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.